weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 22, 2008. I'm Adrian Burke. Craig Venter is known worldwide for his role in sequencing the human genome using his own DNA. More recently, he completed a two-year circumnavigation of the globe, inspired in part by Darwin's expedition aboard the Beagle. The mission of Venter's Global Ocean Sampling Expedition was to collect and study marine microbial life, create a publicly available database, and use these data to further scientific knowledge in multiple fields. Venter spoke recently at the American Museum of Natural History in New York on the occasion of the publication of his autobiography, A Life Decoded, My Genome, My Life. That was a very flattering introduction, and I'm delighted to be here. Actually, this is by... Second time in this theater, uh, we actually had the debut of the uh, Cracking the Ocean Code film that the Discovery Channel made in high definition. Uh, so uh, I see it advertised on Amazon. I don't actually know if they have any DVDs left, but it's a it's a pretty exciting uh, version of uh, our sailing around the world that I'll talk about very briefly. Uh, this is obviously a broad and diverse audience, so I, I thought I would give you a broad and diverse uh, overview of genomics from uh, our early days to uh, what we announced last week and try and put it in some kind of context uh, and then hopefully leave uh, some time for some some questions. Uh, I'll, I'll try to leave out all the, the politics and the sex and things like that because you, you can get all that from my book. Um, uh, but if you have questions on either of those topics, I'll try to help you. Um, so, uh, as you heard in, in George's kind introduction, uh, it, we sequenced the first genome in history from a living organism, and that was in 1995, using a couple key principles, a random selection uh, and uh, high-throughput massively parallel sequencing and computers. Uh, and a, a new set of mathematical algorithms allowed us to uh, assemble uh, the DNA. Uh, we couldn't get funding uh, for this from the government, uh, even though we tried. Um, but one of the good things about science in this country is after you, if you get a chance from other means to prove your ideas are good, uh, the government will then anoint you with uh, tons of money, um, uh, which they did. They actually... Uh, uh, started uh, giving us uh, uh, more grants uh, than, than we could apply for uh, to sequence most major human pathogens, some environmental organisms, uh, the first plant, uh, and then working our way up to insects uh, and humans. Uh, the second biggest breakthrough uh, came uh, in 99 and when we set up to sequence the Drosophila genome because its uh, homophilus was a 1.8 million base pairs, and this was 180 million base pairs. Now, the Haemophilus uh, genome took what was a 10-year project and reduced it to four months. Uh, and then we uh, took something uh, substantially larger uh, and what was supposed to be a lifetime project and reduced that to uh, four months uh, with new technology and scaling up. And as soon as the fruit fly was done, uh, we started sequencing human and nine months later had the completed uh, at least first draft of the human genome. Now this last year you might have read uh, in the fall that 
actually published the first uh, diploid uh, genome sequence, the first complete genome of an individual. Uh, it's somebody I've gotten to know quite well. Um, and the difference between this sequence and what we published uh, earlier was uh, both the government project and the Solera projects uh, were, were flawed in ways that were surprising to people. Uh, the government project only did half the genome. Uh, it was doing what's called the haploid genome because the assumptions were that uh, there was so little human variation uh, that it wouldn't matter uh, if we looked at just one set of chromosomes from one parent instead of the combination in any individual. But the Solera sequence was equally flawed, but for a different reason. Uh, we actually tried to get more diversity, so instead of sequencing one person, we sequenced genomes from five individuals, uh, three women and two men, uh, people of uh, self-described ethnicities, African-American, Hispanic, Chinese, and Caucasian. And had we not done that, we would have had the right answer eight years ago if we'd just done one. Uh, but on resequencing one individual to a an, an ex, uh, substantial extent, we found that all that we learned uh, about human diversity was wrong. Uh, you may have remembered the announcements and the claims that we all differed from each other by one letter out of a thousand in our genetic code, and that we all have basically the same sets of genes. Well, it turns out we don't all have the same genes, uh, and we differ from each other more like one to two percent instead of one out of a thousand. And this is very significant because we used to, a very short while ago, lecture that we differed as a species from chimpanzees by 1.27 percent. So now I'm telling you, you differ more than that from the person sitting next to you. Uh, and, and, and so you're, hopefully you're asking, did that difference between chimpanzees change as well? Or, or, or evolutionary biologists are in some hot water. Um, and fortunately, it has changed. Uh, we're more like 5 to 6% different from uh, chimps. Uh, it's just areas where you find alignment uh, in gene-rich regions, uh, they differ uh, only by a little bit more than uh, 1% to 2%. Uh, there's a lot of variation. In my genome, 44% of the genes had a major variant in them. Uh, and we also found uh, that uh, there's a number of genes that we all humans don't share. Uh, one gene in particular that detoxifies environmental toxins. A third of Caucasians have no copies of whatsoever. Another third have one copy, and a third have uh, two copies. Uh, I'm in the one copy uh, category. Uh, so many of the assumptions that I talked about were, were clearly uh, wrong. Uh, in fact, uh, people thought these uh, SNPs or single nucleotide variations uh, were uh, all of human variation. In fact, the uh, base pairs that are not in SNPs, uh, what are called indels, insertions, and deletions, and copy number variations account for 75% of the base pairs that are uh, different uh, between any two people. As we scale up to understand the human genome uh, better uh, and looking at the, the maps, you can download this map if you want a, a copy of it uh, from the PLOS Biology website, and it's, you can zoom in. Uh, it's a very large file, um, but you can start to see the maps of the genes and the maps of the variation. We don't really know how to interpret those data right now. Um, one of the things I try to cover in my book, uh, talking about various gene changes that, that have shown up in my genome, 
but that we need comprehensive information across uh, the genome to truly understand uh, not only each of us, uh, but the larger population. Uh, we have a new uh, Internet uh, browser uh, that's going to be released this month that allows scientists and lay people to zoom in and out uh, down to the level of the sequence variation. And our goal is to add a lot of sequences to this. Uh, we want to do 10,000 human genomes over the next decade. But not just the genome sequence, though that's become the easy part. Uh, we want to have all the phenotypic information associated with those individuals because we think we now are at a point in history where we can try and answer every basic question about what's nature and what's nurture. Uh, we won't have to guess. Uh, we won't live it, leave it up to... Uh, philosophers to argue and academicians to uh, carve up territory over, we will be able to reduce these to scientific facts. Um, what is not genetic uh, is going to be environmental. And we've spent a lot of time thinking and, and measuring different aspects of the environment, including uh, the microbial populations trying to understand uh, diversity. And you'll see this actually affects uh, our physiology uh, shortly uh, in a substantial extent. Uh, the microbes make up uh, over half of uh, the Earth's biomass. So if you take all the plants and animals and weigh them and you take all the bacteria, uh, the bacteria are going to weigh more uh, as a group, uh, even though they're part of this invisible world that we assume they're not there because we can't uh, see them. Uh, but if you go out here uh, in the harbor, or, well, in the harbor it could even be more. Off the coast, there's about a million bacteria per milliliter of seawater uh, and 10 million viruses. Uh, I've done a lot of surfing, and I've swallowed more than a mouthful or two of seawater. So but when you think about how many uh, bacteria and viruses you consume when you do that, it's, it's pretty stunning. Uh, we're also measuring uh, bacteria in the air in New York City and the viruses in the air. Uh, there's nothing unique about this lecture, but during the course of this lecture, you'll all uh, breathe in and out uh, about uh, 10,000 microorganisms of various types. Um, you can look closely at your neighbor because you're sharing DNA with them of various types, uh, mostly not human. Uh, uh, and we live in this bacteria milieu. Uh, and I'll show you, in fact, uh, we have more bacteria than uh, human cells in our own bodies. But we did this experiment in the oceans uh, off of Bermuda, just applying these same techniques we developed for sequencing the hu human genome to sequencing uh, the ocean, and published the first results in 2004, uh, where we discovered uh, over a million new genes and about 40,000 new species all in just a barrel of seawater. Uh, and so we decided to extend those studies uh, to a circumnavigation where we took samples every 200 miles, similar to the Challenger expedition in the 1870s, which every 200 miles around the globe uh, sent a uh, dredge down to the bottom of the sea uh, to see if anything was there. The assumption was at the time uh, there was no life uh, at the bottom of the ocean because we all knew from human existence that it couldn't survive there. Uh, we published the first results of this in a special issue of the online access journal uh, PLOS uh, Biology. Uh, this is a picture from our, our research vessel, the Sorcerer 2, which is a 100-foot uh, uh, sloop. 
this is the route we followed uh, as with the Challenger expedition. We started in Halifax, Nova Scotia, went down the U.S. East Coast uh, through the Caribbean Sea, through Panama uh, uh, to the Galapagos, and, and that's the data that was covered in that special issue. Uh, but we went on from there. We uh, sailed across the Pacific Ocean, covered all of French Polynesia, which was just horrible duty. Um, then uh, we spent about a half a year in and around Australia, then across the Indian Ocean, uh, then around uh, uh, Cape of Good Hope and, and back up uh, uh, in the North Atlantic. So we're, uh, we're now analyzing a lot of this data, and the, the data sets are about to uh, double again. These are very simple experiments. Um, it's the kind of experiments that really make scientists mad because they're so simple in concept and they work so well uh, that the, the number one thought a lot of people have is, I could have thought of that. Um, and uh, they probably could have, but they, they didn't. Um, or they dismissed it as too easy. Um, so we just filter seawater through these different size filters and we collect the microorganisms uh, on different size filters. Uh, the 0.1 micron filter, people normally consider anything goes through that would be sterile water, but that's uh, everything that goes through that. Uh, we collect on a 50 kilodalton uh, filter, uh, and that's the viral fraction. That's where we find uh, the 10 million viruses per milliliter. Uh, it, it's very simple to do this. It takes a few hours each uh, time we stop. And then we just put the filters in the freezer and we get to a port. Uh, we put them on a plane uh, back to uh, our lab in Maryland. Uh, what we found was uh, stunned us and uh, almost every biologist and oceanographer. Uh, we found every 200 miles, 85% of the organisms and sequences were unique to that part of the ocean. So you might have thought the ocean was a giant homogeneous soup. Uh, in fact, it's anything but. It's millions or tens of millions of microenvironments dynamically changing all the time. Simplistically, uh, so the red or the darker colors here are warm. That's the Gulf Stream that goes over and keeps uh, England and Europe out of the ice ages. Uh, the blue is cold. Uh, we found there was a total changing uh, but absolute demarcation between the cold water samples and the warm water samples. Uh, and these are subject to cyclic variation uh, off of Bermuda, for example, to the point we can tell exactly where in the ocean a, uh, uh, a water sample came from looking at the organisms and the DNA sequences. Uh, it's that unique. Uh, and if you think of what's been happening over the last century uh, in terms of uh, the world's ecology with ships, so uh, if a uh, tanker... Uh, comes into New York Harbor and offloads its uh, uh, millions of gallons of oil. Uh, they don't just turn around and sail away empty because boats don't work too well that way, so they replace that oil with water. And then they get to their next port, and uh, they dump out all that seawater, uh, and they take on new cargo. So cargo ships have been doing this forever. So if there's a million bacteria per ml, uh, just imagine the trillions of organisms in the ballast water of a supertanker. And so we've been mixing and matching uh, our ecology for a long time. And so it's, it's no surprise that we see things like zebra mussels in the Great Lakes. Uh, it's actually more amazing we haven't had uh, far more complex uh, ecological uh, problems. 
but probably because there's unique selection for these organisms. And that selection, in part, is based on sunlight. And this was one of the other big discoveries we made early on, because all the microbiologists were saying we would not find very many microorganisms in the Sargasso Sea, because the waters in the Sargasso Sea are known to be a desert. Uh, there's very few nutrients there, so the assumption was there would be no life. In fact, we found uh, this incredible amount of life. And in terms of each of these organisms in the upper parts of the ocean, they have molecules very similar to those in our eyes that we use to see. Uh, our visual pigments, they have molecules closely resembling those that actually see light and convert that into electrical energy for the cells. And so what was known in the world, uh, that blue at the bottom was the summation of our knowledge of these uh, rhodopsin uh, molecules, including uh, our own. Uh, and so just from that first barrel of seawater, uh, these red ones show the diversity of all the new molecules that we found. Uh, we continue to find these, and we've tried to do uh, multiple protein alignments, uh, so it gets very complicated in the computer when you have thousands of these. But there's a good reason to do it. There's in a single amino acid residue in these receptors that determine the wavelength of light that is seen by these molecules. And because every sequence we have is tagged with the GPS coordinates, we can ask unique questions like, uh, is there a uh, unique location in the world for organisms with receptors that see blue light uh, versus green light? And to our surprise, there was. Uh, it makes sense in retrospect, but it was kind of a stunning finding seeing that nobody even knew these molecules existed. Um, when you go out in the uh, Sargasso Sea, it's a deep indigo blue, uh, and the photoreceptors in the organisms there see primarily uh, blue light. You get into coastal waters where there's a lot of chlorophyll, a lot of algae, uh, the organisms that survive there see primarily green light. Uh, in the Panama Canal, where it's all fresh water, they see only green light. But we've discovered a number of new variants, and we're trying to work out, uh, along with others, what the wavelength of light that they see is. Uh, but a study uh, recently by a Swedish group, in fact, showed that these organisms are totally dependent on light for their growth. So now it's not so surprising that they can exist in this low-nutrient environment, because instead of feeding on sugar or some other chemical, they get their energy directly from sunlight. And this is not photosynthesis like plants. This is just a direct uh, molecular mechanism, the same as you're using right now to uh, look at these uh, slides. So that's a very big change in a short period of time about our view uh, of the world. The other part was that instead of having a few single organisms, we have a vast diversity. So all these sequences, each one of those little bars represents about 900 base pairs of DNA sequence. Uh, scientists thought that SAR-11 was a single organism. Uh, instead, uh, most of what we see uh, that matches one of the genomes we sequence uh, from something called SAR-11, we see this tremendous diversity roughly between 60% uh, identity and 98% identity. Now, to put things in context, uh, we're on the order of, as you heard, 4 to 5% different from chimpanzees, 10% from mice and rats. Uh, here's organisms that do the same function that have 
largely the same types of genes in their genomes, but they differ by each other by as much as 40% in the sequence. Yet, what prior to this study, these were all lumped together and thought to be a single uh, organism. Now, there's a lot of different questions we can ask with this kind of data. We can take just a slice through any of this data and make uh, what are called phylogenetic trees, just relationship trees between how closely related these organisms are to each other. And we can ask various questions. So because all our sites are color-coded, uh, we can compare them by site to see if there's any correlation. Didn't look like there really was. Uh, what's in the Atlantic Ocean versus the Pacific? Uh, nothing really leaps out. The, the bottom was, to me, one of the most exciting findings. So that single amino acid that determines the wavelength of light that the receptor see, uh, you can change one uh, letter in the genetic code. Uh, you probably recall that there's a three-letter code for each amino acid. Uh, but just changing one of those letters can determine uh, whether that receptor will see blue or green light. So when you think of uh, what people think about simplistically with Darwinian evolution, if you get a random mutation that changes uh, what was blue to green, uh, what does that do for survival? Well, it's clear that one letter code out of the genetic code is what can determine whether these organisms survive in that environment uh, because of the wavelengths of lights that they see give them the advantage in terms of energy production over the others. But this is, in recent history, has switched back and forth four times, uh, probably dependent on where the organisms were. But we can substitute any question uh, for this kind of data. There's a lot of other questions that come up with this data. For example, are we really making a lot of new discoveries? Are we finding, as with the photoreceptors, just a lot of distant relatives of known uh, families? And if we are discovering things, what's the rate of discovery? Uh, well, we took a number of approaches to, to looking at this, but we were stunned when just taking the database that we'd collected from Halifax through the Galapagos, and it was twice as large as all the data accumulated by scientists uh, over the last 30 to 40 years of DNA and protein sequencing. And so we spent about a million CPU hours of compute time to assemble all this data together. Uh, and we found that there's on the order of 50,000 uh, multi-gene uh, gene families uh, thus far characterized on the planet. We have around 22,000 genes and uh, about half of that in terms of actual gene families. So here's 50,000 major gene families at the most, uh, we comprise about 12,000 of those with our own uh, genetic code. So there's a lot of genetic diversity. Uh, in fact, more that's not associated with us as a species than is. Um, uh, just to put this in context, uh, looking at this diversity of organisms, we're in that little group uh, uh, up there uh, called animals. Uh, when we look at the gene sets from animals, uh, we, we see that's pretty much saturated in terms of discovery. So sequencing a mole genome or some other mammal won't give us any new genes. It might give us unique combinations that tell us that's a mole. Uh, but randomly sampling in the environment is constantly giving us new discoveries in the microbial world in a linear fashion. 
So uh, our, our view is we probably know less than 1% right now of the microbial world. Uh, and hopefully you're asking, why was all this missed before? Uh, it's because microbiology up until recently has been done the same way as uh, Pasteur was doing it over 100 years ago, of just having auger plates and taking samples and seeing what would grow on it. And so that gave us this misinformed view of the microbial world, including with infectious disease, that were they're just single isolates of organisms versus this tremendous complexity that's out there. In fact, we're a part of that complexity, so we're looking, using these same techniques to look at the bacteria associated with our GI tracts, our oral cavities, etc., cetera, uh, using the same shotgun sequencing. And, for example, uh, the, the early studies, and I think these are huge underestimates, uh, but a typical oral cavity will have over a 1,000 microbial species. This is not counting viruses, so you need to multiply that by 10 uh, to get the number of viruses. Uh, think about the, the next time you're kissing your girlfriend, uh, spouse, or boyfriend. Or, um, it, it, it's a lot of organisms. Uh, and uh, there's a, roughly an equal number in the intestinal tract. They're, they're actually different ones. Uh, and you can see other cavities like the vagina uh, or skin uh, has uh, hundreds of different species. Uh, studies of soldiers in the deserts have shown, for example, uh, the bacteria in, our oral, in the oral cavity can swap out completely based on the environment that we're in. Uh, so just a short time <coughs> of being in a desert, uh, people will change uh, dramatically these microorganisms. But it turns out they might have a lot more impact on us uh, than just uh, going along for the ride. So if we look at us as a species and what we can produce in terms of chemical compounds, the estimates seem to be around 24, 2,500 chemicals that all our gene and cellular diversity can come up with. So uh, if you measure what's in our bloodstream, uh, you'll find these various fractions of human genes. And obviously our metabolic pathways get quite complex. <clears throat> At any one time, there's around 450, 500 uh, compounds circulating in our blood. Uh, about 60% of those are based on there's our own human metabolism. Uh, those 2,500 compounds uh, show up at various rates. Uh, about 30% are from what we just ate. Um, <coughs> so this notion of we are uh, what we eat is certainly partly true. Uh, but 10% of those chemicals are from not what we ate, but what we fed our bacteria, what they metabolize and then put in our bloodstream. So everybody here, I'm sure, has taken one or more pharmaceutics uh, uh, maybe uh, either just before or just after this lecture. Um, uh, and, and we think of things in a singular kind of way of, well, I'm taking aspirin, that's, that's the drug that's in my bloodstream. Uh, but it's, it's one out of 500 or perhaps one out of 1,000 chemicals circulating in us. And because you probably all ate very different things, uh, we would find a very different set of chemicals in each one of us. 
and because we also have um, different uh, sets of bacteria, uh, taking any two people to set a bacteria in the intestinal tracts, unless they know each other really well, um, only overlaps by about 20%. Uh, so we're all going to have a different set of chemicals uh, in our bloodstreams, depending on our diet, depending on which bacteria we have uh, in our systems. Uh, and that provides a huge chemical diversity that has never been taken into account in human physiology or animal physiology or any kind of physiology before. Uh, it's always been overly simplified uh, in terms of a few nutritional metabolites. So now you know the world is really complex. Uh, we differ from each other far more than anybody thought. Uh, and we all ha now have this tremendous chemical diversity. Uh, but it's a chance to actually now deconvolute this uh, material uh, to understand what really does make us tick versus the constant oversimplification. What else can we do with all this? Uh, we've also been trying to understand life uh, by dissecting it further. Uh, this organism there is the second one that we decoded back in 1995. It's actually the uh, cell, bacterial cell with the smallest uh, genome for an organism such as this that can self-replicate in uh, laboratory conditions. Turns out there's now uh, bacteria or pseudobacteria and archaea with much smaller genomes, but they're total symbionts. They can't grow without a host cell. So it's not clear whether they're small bacteria or large viruses, but this organism can grow uh, completely independently in culture. And ever since the time when we uh, sequence its genome, and that's what its genome map looks like, uh, in contrast to the complexity I showed you with our own uh, maps, we ask simple questions. If one species needs 1,800 genes to survive and this one needed 500 some odd genes, was that the minimal component? Uh, could we define life in these genetic terms? Uh, or was there a smaller subset of genes? And so we started uh, uh, knocking out genes in this organism. And, and the way we do that, it's called whole genome transposon mutagenesis. Uh, there's small genetic elements uh, that randomly insert in DNA and hop around. So if we were to sequence each one of your genomes, about a third of our genomes are these uh, transposon elements. Uh, and they're constantly hopping around uh, throughout human evolution. And sometimes when they hop into the middle of a gene, they disrupt it in humans. And there's several diseases that have been characterized by these transposons uh, inserting in human genes. We use those in the case of this. We can take this transposon uh, and put it in uh, to these cells. And if it inserts in a gene, we select for living uh, cells. So each place you see one of these triangles is where a transposon inserted. Because we have the genome sequence, we can work out exactly down to the base pair where they inserted. And if it inserted in the middle of one of these genes and the cell lived, we called that gene a, a, a non-essential gene because the cell could live without it. You'll see a lot of genes on here, these bars with no with little triangles beneath them. And so that means you could never get a living cell with a transposon in one of those genes. So we call those genes essential genes. And we worked out there was a 100 or more genes that we could delete from the genome. Uh, 
uh, or knock out and have the cell still live. But when we looked at uh, cellular metabolism, so here's a map of uh, the, the simple metabolism of this simple organism. Uh, this took us a while to compile. Uh, here's all the genes that could be knocked out. So we think this would disrupt uh, too many metabolic pathways and the cell would probably die if we knocked out all these genes. You can only knock them out one at a time. So this is where we got the notion that if we could build a chromosome from scratch, we could vary the gene content and really get down to fundamental questions and answers uh, about genetic life and a genetic cell. Uh, and so we started down that route. Uh, we started first with having an ethical uh, review of uh, just asking bioethicists, is it okay to try and uh, create artificial life in the lab and, and try to answer questions about it? That, that took a while uh, for a group at the University of Pennsylvania uh, consulting with every major religion and uh, broad lay groups to try and answer, but they published their results in Science in 1999 and said, yes, the reasons uh, we were doing the experiments and where we hoped to go, uh, they thought it was reasonable. Uh, they had caveats and concerns about uh, possible misuse uh, of this technology. So we started down uh, the road, and, and there were two key questions. Um, could the chemistry even permit synthesizing uh, large DNA molecules? Because it had never been done before. And even if we could eventually make a synthetic chromosome, uh, what do you do with it? It's just an inert chemical. Uh, if it's a chemical version of software, uh, how do we boot up that software? Uh, and so we've been working in detail on these questions starting back in 1996. We took a short break to sequence the human genome uh, and then came back to this in earnest in, in 2002. Now, what we've really been doing with all this DNA sequencing is digitizing biology. So we're taking uh, this analog world of biology as we sequence the genomes. We're taking that material and we're converting it into digital information in the computer. And uh, you can see that's uh, been changing exponentially. And you saw that with some of the work we did going from 10 years to four months to uh, than doing that again on a couple log units uh, higher. Uh, reading the genetic code is pretty fast. Writing the genetic code uh, is remarkably slow. It's about uh, uh, 10 to the fifth uh, difference between these two processes uh, right now. Uh, and even though reading the genetic code started out relatively inaccurate, it started getting more and more accurate. Uh, writing the genetic code was really inaccurate. and. Uh, it's a degenerative process, so you can't just have machines spit out uh, accurate pieces of, of DNA. And the most they can do is make things maybe 50 or 80 letters long. So if you want to make something 5,000 letters long, how do you do that when the pieces aren't very accurate? Well, my uh, friends and colleagues, uh, Ham Smith and Clyde Hutchinson, working uh, with the, this problem, uh, came up with a way for error correction and... Uh, rapidly going from digital information, the computer, to actually making these chemical molecules in the lab. And we demonstrated that uh, uh, several years ago now with trying to make the uh, chromosome of a bacteriophage. Bacteriophage is a virus that kills bacteria. Uh, Phi X174 was actually 
historically the first actual genome that was sequenced, if you count viruses uh, in their genomes. And this was done by uh, Fred uh, Sanger. Uh, Clyde Hutchinson was actually part of his group when he did that work, so we chose it for historical purposes. We had to resequence the genome to make sure we're starting with the correct digital information. Uh, and then just going from that digital information to designing these small pieces uh, and unique processes for assembling together and, and uh, accurately making it, we were able to make this uh, 5,000 uh, base pair piece in about two weeks. Uh, the exciting event to me is that we took that piece of DNA and put it in bacteria, uh, E. coli, and the E. coli recognized that as unique software and started making the viral particles based on this chemical-made uh, software that we put in. And uh, the viral particles were released from the bacteria and started killing the bacteria, which is why... So this is a lawn of bacteria, and every place you see those clear spots is where there was uh, large numbers of viruses produced that killed the, the bacteria. So we argue this is a case where the software now is building its own hardware. So conceptually, we're starting with digital data in the computer, making a chemical, and that chemical go into a cell and get booted up. Well, doing that with viruses is one thing. Uh, the genome of mycoplasma genitalium is 570,000 some odd base pairs. Uh, that's a little different than, than 5,000. So we set out to see if we can construct an artificial chromosome using, starting with pieces, the size of what we made with the virus. So we start with pieces around uh, five to 7,000 uh, base pairs, uh, thinking that would give us an ideal piece for mixing and matching uh, to change the gene content. And uh, as we reported just last week, uh, after four, almost five years' work, uh, we have now succeeded in making this chemical. It's the largest chemical of defined structure ever made uh, by humans. Uh, so it's 582,970 base pairs. Uh, every one of them is totally accurate based on what we designed. Uh, if we were going to print this out at 10 font, it would take 147 pages just to print out uh, the sequence of what we have made. Uh, and it's over 300 million uh, molecular weight. Uh, we had to develop all kinds of new technology along the way. Uh, as with the virus, we had to start with resequencing the genome because uh, the standard in 1995 is very different than what we could do today. Uh, and had we used the sequence that we uh, did in 1995, uh, we now know the genome would not have worked because there were enough errors and that there were about 30 errors that we corrected. So we had to start with the design phase. So you have this large linear uh, digital sequence, uh, and we have to go down to pieces that are 50 letters long that we compile into something of the size of the PHIX-174 genome. But then we had to also do the design so that we could put those larger and larger uh, pieces together. And as you may have read, we also uh, put some uh, uh, watermarks in the genetic code uh, so there's a, a triplet uh, code uh, in DNA that codes for amino acids. Uh, there's 20 amino acids, and they all have a single, single letter genetic code. Uh, so we can write names, even stories, possibly, uh, in, in the DNA code uh, for people to work out. Uh, these weren't too hard to work out, and we also published what they were. Um, 
uh, in where people could look them up on the internet after decoding. It sort of looks like a basketball uh, playoff. Um, uh, so we started with 101 pieces, uh, all the size of Phi X174 or bigger, uh, and assembled those uh, in clusters of four to make things that were 24,000 base pairs. Then each one of those pieces uh, we had to clone into E. coli to make a lot more of the DNA to go to the next steps. And also we could sequence it uh, because uh, this field had a uh, horrible history, uh, particularly with the human genome. Uh, people came up with yeast artificial chromosomes to try and grow large pieces of human DNA. And basically what the yeast did was uh, delete major uh, pieces, rearrange it, and scramble the DNA. Uh, and so at each step we had to verify as we were building these procedures that they were really robust. Uh, that's in part why it took so long. Uh, the next stage, going to 72,000 base pair molecules, the largest piece that had ever been made was 32 kb. So each one of those pieces at the B stage uh, were almost uh, twice uh, what had been uh, the world's record before. Uh, and as we get larger and larger in pieces of DNA, they don't grow so easily in bacteria. Uh, so the final stages, uh, we went to grow these in yeast, uh, which could tolerate them. Uh, we grew them up in yeast, and, and that was able to, uh, uh, it didn't rearrange them. It was a very high fidelity. But more importantly, we found if we designed them properly and put the pieces in yeast, uh, yeast would assemble them automatically for us. And we'd been trying to do this with other approaches, uh, so how do you assemble all these little pieces? Uh, we were trying to use a key biological process called homologous recombination. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. There's an organism we were working on called Dinococcus radiodurians. Uh, this organism can take three million rads of radiation and not be killed. Uh, don't try that at home. Um, we can only absorb a tiny fraction of that uh, uh, without being killed. Uh, what happens, its chromosome get blown apart into hundreds of little pieces. But 12 to 24 hours later, it stitches all those pieces back together again and remakes its chromosome. Basically, this is a biological equivalent of what we've spent so much time to try and achieve in the computer uh, by reassembling genomes. Uh, I think uh, part of people understanding biology uh, is getting away from this human-centric view of it. Uh, as I said, we can only tolerate a tiny, tiny fraction of this amount of radiation, and we don't reassemble our genome into little pieces. We just die. Uh, but there's thousands of organisms that can do this. We have organisms that can exist in uh, temperatures much hotter than boiling water. Uh, the current uh, record is over 120 degrees centigrade. Uh, we're all taught that you want to kill bacteria, you boil them. Uh, that's how you sterilize things. Uh, there's uh, millions of organisms on our planet uh, that get happier uh, the hotter they get. Uh, and so that doesn't work. Um, we have a number of organisms that grow in such strong acid or base that if you put your finger in the solution, your skin would dissolve immediately. 
They can take huge doses of radiation. We have organisms that live at zero degrees, uh, and they're found in the ice all the time in Antarctica and other places. So we have tremendous diversity. Uh, we are not the center of that diversity uh, in terms of extremes. Uh, we have a different type of diversity. So we found we could just throw these pieces together in yeast. Yeast would automatically assemble them for us and make these uh, bigger pieces, which means the next stages won't take us four to five years. Uh, they'll take us uh, uh, months to weeks. Uh, this molecule that we've made is actually so large you can see it without uh, a, a very powerful microscope. We, uh, an electron microscope would zoom in on just a tiny portion of it. So it is a circular chromosome. Uh, molecules like this kind of move dynamically. So this is just pictures taken over a six-second time period uh, as it comes in and out of focus uh, with this uh, uh, light uh, and fluorescent microscope. So it's... Uh, truly a large molecule that has been created. Uh, the question is, is it just a nice piece of chemistry or, or can we boot it up? And uh, uh, as you probably read, we don't actually know the answer totally uh, to that, but we uh, know part of the answer. And uh, last year in science, uh, we published a pretty exciting paper to us because we were able to change one species into another uh, by changing its genetic material. Uh, so some have called this genomic alchemy, um, but uh, we haven't turned it into gold yet. Um, but what we did is we isolated a chromosome from one uh, mycoplasma species, and we uh, treated it pretty harshly. We had enzymes that digested proteins associated with it, because we wanted this to be a model for what, if we were making the DNA chemically in the lab, it wouldn't have proteins with it. Uh, and we took that DNA and we inserted it in another uh, related species, roughly the same distance as humans and mice are to each other. Uh, we added some things to the chromosome first. Uh, we added a couple of genes to it uh, so we could detect it readily. It would turn cells blue uh, if it was in there. Uh, and we could select for the molecule. Now, initially, we thought we would have to remove the chromosome from the cell we were transplanting it into. Uh, that's very hard to do with bacteria. So everything you hear with animal cloning is actually technically a lot easier because you can just, with a microscope, you can cut out the nucleus of a eukaryotic cell and put in uh, the uh, donor one. Uh, with bacteria, the chromosome is just part of the cytoplasma. There is no nucleus. Uh, and what we decided we might be able to do is just take normal living cells, add the chromosome, and select for it. In fact, there's a unique uh, case here because the recipient cell, this uh, M. capricolum, its genome is very unusual because it does not code for a restriction enzyme. Restriction enzymes are the enzymes that are the molecular scissors that cut DNA uh, at unique places. In fact, my friend and colleague, Ham Smith, received the Nobel Prize in 1978 for discovering uh, these restriction enzymes. The chromosome, the mycoides genome that we transplanted in, did code for a restriction enzyme. And, and I'm sure you'll love this really brilliant graphic we have, um, where we transplanted in the chromosome, uh, and uh, the restriction enzyme on the chromosome got read out by the cellular system 
and recognized the original chromosome as foreign DNA and chopped it up, leaving the chromosome that we transplanted in uh, as the uh, chromosome for the cell. Uh, and over a very short period of time, all the characteristics of the original species were lost. So when we sequenced the proteins, every protein in the cell was that coded for by the transplanted chromosome. Uh, we sequenced the DNA. It was all from the transplant. Uh, there were no hybrids. Uh, so it was literally converting one species into another by changing its operating system. Now, you may think this is really an unnatural phenomenon, and in fact it's not. Uh, and by the way, the, the cells turn blue as well, as they should have. Uh, we think this happens quite frequently in nature. Uh, we didn't know what we were discovering when we did this. Uh, it was first noticed when I sequenced, our team sequenced the cholera genome. Many scientists argued that cholera was too similar to E. coli, uh, and therefore there was no point in sequencing its genome. It turns out, instead of one chromosome, cholera had two chromosomes. One was very similar to E. coli, but one was the other one was very different. Uh, and it looked like it resulted either from a cell fusion or uh, the cell taking up another chromosome. And we see this now throughout the microbial world. The uh, Deinococcus radiodurans actually has uh, four separate uh, DNA elements. It has uh, two uh, chromosomes, a, a very large megaplasmid, and a smaller plasmid. Uh, so what we see as species, even in the microbial world, are quite often composites uh, from multiple species. Now, I gave you an example earlier of changing one letter of genetic code, change the photoreceptor from seeing blue to green light, uh, and people think that's quite often how evolution occurs. But think of what happens here, where we can take in a whole new chromosome with maybe two or 3,000 new genes. We can, in a heartbeat, change the characteristics of a species uh, a thousand units at a time. Uh, and this happens all the time in evolution. So the, the, the anti-evolutionists that want to argue you can't develop complex uh, function uh, by changing one letter of the genetic code randomly, uh, they, they, they may be right, but nobody's ever truly advocated that. That was always a false argument. Uh, but we now know we can change them uh, thousands of units and thousands of characteristics in, in one single step. And that's what we're mimicking with what we're doing with the synthetic chromosomes. So right now we're trying to boot up the uh, totally uh, man-made uh, chemical, uh, and I'm hopeful that will happen this year. But what are the next steps and why? And I'll, I'll go through this quickly, but I think it's important in the context, and you see the science in the context of why we're doing various things, aside from just on, trying to understand basic cellular function. Uh, we're going from 6.5 to 9 billion people on this planet over the next 40 years. So you can look maybe on this graph if you're on it. I'm not quite on it. I'm a little off to the left there. I, I was born in 1946, so today there's two and a half people for everybody that existed when I was born. Uh, in 40 years, uh, there'll be four. So um, imagine, uh, you know, if if uh, every third person or every fourth person uh, was all that there was in this room. That would be indicative of the population change uh, in 
certainly in my lifetime. We have trouble feeding and providing fuel and fresh water and medicine for six and a half billion. It's not quite clear how we're going to do it for nine. Uh, in 2003, the last year for accurate numbers, uh, as a population on this planet, we uh, burnt uh, 5.4 billion tons of coal and 29 billion barrels of oil. I mean, it, these are numbers, even though I work with large numbers, are just really hard uh, to imagine. Um, we're constantly increasing the amount of CO2 we're adding to the atmosphere. This slide is now out of date. That number has risen to 4.2 billion tons a year that's being added to the atmosphere. Uh, and it's increasing at an exponential rate as uh, the population grows, as India and China get industrialized and all want to have SUVs and uh, we want to clear land uh, for planting more crops to feed all these people. Uh, and we've saturated the carbon sinks. Uh, so change could start to happen even faster. I think these are valid reasons to try and come up uh, with new approaches. So here's the, the rise in CO2 uh, and the changes in temperature over the last century or so. So our approach, uh, which is pretty novel right now, is to view all these uh, tens of millions of genes that we and others have discovered as the design components of the future. Uh, and if you liken it to the electronics industry in the 40s and 50s, uh, there was only a dozen or so design components, resistors, transistors, capacitors. Uh, we have now 10 million, and this year we're about to double that number to 20 million uh, gene components. Uh, we're working on uh, designing software to design the software uh, where we can design what kind of uh, species uh, we want, uh, how we want it to metabolize, do we want it to uh, uh, eat sugar, as in uh, corn sugar going to ethanol, or do we want to start back with photosynthesis or start with CO2, etc. cetera. Uh, and we've been designing a robot to do uh, hundreds to thousands to millions of times a day what we've done over the last four to five years, uh, and we're calling this field combinatorial genomics. So imagine if we could take, uh, e even make a thousand chromosomes a day uh, and screen them for specific functions. Uh, we can start to deconvolute these tens of millions of genes, uh, most of which uh, we don't know what their function is yet, uh, and try empirically uh, to make uh, new uh, sources of chemicals and fuels, et cetera. DuPont has uh, done this over the last uh, 10 or so years, uh, just changing several metabolic pathways in E. coli, uh, just to go from sugar, uh, so a six-carbon sugar, to three-carbon molecule called propane diol. So I don't know if you can see that uh, photo in the bottom. Uh, those four uh, uh, looks like missile silos. Those are four 6,000-liter fermenters. These 6,000-liter fermenters are all growing this modified E. coli where they go from a corn syrup to make a propane diol, which is a component of their new uh, Serona polymer that they're making. So this is clearly the largest biotech product made to date, uh, and they're claiming it's certainly the, the first billion-dollar biotech product that's uh, not a pharmaceutical. 
but they had to uh, try and shut down metabolic pathways. Uh, my estimation is this engineering cost them, uh, uh, for the organism alone, somewhere between uh, 40 and $50 million over a decade of two companies working on it. Uh, they, this plant cost $100 million to build. Uh, so if we could reduce that decade-long project to uh, uh, a year or less or even months, uh, it changes the number of things we can apply this to. Uh, Ham Smith and I started a company called Synthetic Genomics a couple years ago, and we have a partnership with BP in one area trying to look to see if biology could be used to break down uh, coal uh, to produce uh, natural gas. So we've actually taken some samples from a mile deep in the uh, earth uh, from a coal bed, uh, and we were absolutely stunned to see there was more biological diversity a mile deep in the earth than we found in the ocean. In just a microscopic uh, field of these organisms, it was, it, it was exciting just to watch because it was loaded with all these organisms swimming really fast all over the place, many of them spirochetes, which we normally associate with human disease. So here's a picture that was just taken a few days ago. So that's a uh, large uh, piece of coal, and you can see all the tiny microbes all over the surface, and you can see the, the fluorescence with them around the outside. And here's what those microbes are doing. They're breaking down the coal, and they're producing methane gas. And so the goal, and there's many coal-to-methane uh, coal mines uh, right now because of these naturally occurring biological processes. Uh, but BP and others are trying to see if we can uh, scale this up uh, by enriching the microbes that are there or finding missing nutrients uh, to go uh, a much faster rate from coal to methane, uh, which could have a, a considerable impact about an order of magnitude. Even though they're still using uh, new carbon, uh, it's about 10 times better than mining coal and burning it uh, and putting it in the atmosphere. Uh, energy crops, everybody's now familiar with this, with corn to ethanol, uh, but it's just uh, nuts what we've done as, as a country with this. Uh, it's, uh, I think, costing more energy than it's uh, producing, uh, and it's producing uh, more CO2 than it's uh, taking out. Uh, it's heavily subsidized by the government. Uh, feed uh, crop prices have more than doubled in a year. And this affects us, every one of us, at every level as uh, we're now fighting uh, food for fuel. Uh, soybean farmers are shutting down their fields to grow corn because they can sell it for more to ethanol producers uh, than uh, for feedstock. So uh, this is driving the economy in totally the wrong direction. Uh, and with going to 9 billion people, we can't afford to take our farmland away uh, to grow uh, food crops. Uh, so we're working on designing a number of organisms to do things differently. What's the major source of energy we have? It's this 120,000 terawatts a day that we get from the sun. Uh, it would only take uh, about uh, 500 million hectares uh, at a 1% efficiency to replace uh, all uh, the uh, oil and coal that we use. Uh, and some people have argued that would be a, a very good use of, uh, of Nevada. Um, uh, but but that, that's a different issue. Um, so we're working on a number of organisms that are good at capturing CO2 photosynthetically. 
most people have been thinking of algae in farming terms, uh, and a number of scientists have engineered algae to produce up to 50% of its mass as lipid, but they've, it's not an economically sound approach either because they want to just grow up the algae and then harvest it uh, and then burn it, where we're working on designing algae that can go from CO2 and sunlight to making octane or making uh, diesel fuel directly. So all these molecules can be made biologically. There's organisms that ex exist naturally in the environment uh, that do this uh, on a small scale. Uh, when you grow them in the lab, they smell uh, like a diesel tank or something. So it's uh, uh, it's trying to enhance uh, what we find in nature. So just to close, uh, we think uh, here's some of the potential uh, uh, uses. Uh, uh, obviously, trying to understand basic cellular life, which we're a long way from doing. And if we can't do that for this minuscule cell, how are we going to understand our own physiology? Uh, I'm... I have slightly larger goals, though. I'd like to replace the petrochemical industry uh, and have this become a major source of energy. Uh, but also we're working on, at the same time, uh, trying to see if we can produce, uh, in a combinatorial fashion, uh, new antibiotic molecules and basically every combination of human antibodies uh, to make uh, vaccines uh, to deal with the health side uh, as well. I mentioned early on uh, how we've been working on ethical uh, review. Uh, part of uh, my day's trip was visiting the Sloan Foundation that uh, funded the work that was just published uh, on, uh, that they published, uh, funded the Venture Institute along with MIT to uh, look at the risk and benefits uh, for society. Uh, and we're constantly trying to drive the public discussion of these issues and the solutions uh, the rules and the stewardship for labs, uh, as well as trying to push the envelope of, of what uh, we might accomplish uh, with it. So I'd be happy to take your uh, questions. Thank you very much. Find out about all events taking place at the American Museum of Natural History and elsewhere in New York at our website, scienceandthecity.org.